So this is our fifth lesson on marriage. And last time we looked at the basic responsibilities that a husband and a wife are given in Ephesians chapter 5. And those basic responsibilities is that that husbands are required to love their wives and wives are to reverence their husbands. In this lesson, we're going to focus on shortcomings in marriage. Shortcomings in marriage. Now up to this point in the study, we focused on the structure and the duties of marriage. And now let's turn our attention to identifying some of the things that go wrong in marriages. It isn't long after the wedding when the husband and wife begin to notice shortcomings in their spouse that flew under the radar before. When a man is trying to win the affections of a woman, he is typically on his best behavior. A woman who is being courted by a man Likewise, is putting her best foot forward, if you will. As they get to know one another, flaws become more visible. And so it is when they're married that these things begin to really affect each other and conflict begins to arise. The things that the husband did to win his wife, the good manners, the flowers, the time spent focused on her, may begin to be neglected. She may become wounded or feel alienated, and so the marriage environment begins to sour. Marriage is kind of like a beautiful sports car. A sports car is built for performance and is capable of high speeds and incredible agility. It looks good when it's new, and it gives a measure of joy and satisfaction to the driver. But every car has its weaknesses, and as it's driven, things begin to go wrong. It could be something simple like it ran out of gas, or it could be more serious like the engine overheating. Like a fancy car, marriage requires care if it is to run well. There is the preventative maintenance to avoid breakdowns, and there are the times when things break and the vehicle must be worked on and fixed in order to drive well. As the marriage develops and children enter the scene, The sports car may look more like a minivan or an SUV. For some, it may even become like a semi-truck because of the heavy load and the responsibilities required. But fundamentally, each of these vehicles requires maintenance and repairs from time to time. So that's what we're going to talk about a little bit today. Now, as we begin to look at some of the problems that arise in marriage, there is a great enemy that is the source of many of these problems. When you were single... Maybe it wasn't as apparent to you, but when you made your vows and began to live with your spouse, you began to realize that things aren't always as you like them. There is another person to consider, and they like the the thermostat at 69 degrees, and you like it at 75. As these differences begin to pile up and conflicts begin to arise, it may eventually occur to you that you are more selfish than you realized, and it's more difficult to navigate because you want things your way. When you have your first baby, there's a whole new set of challenges. There are, there's a whole new set of challenges to the way that you imagine things would be, and you don't. And if you don't come to grips with your own selfishness, things will become difficult, indeed. On a spiritual note, one of the great benefits of marriage is a greater opportunity for sanctification. I know you guys have heard that before. As couples live together, their rough edges 
begin to create friction, and this will inevitably, inevitably bring into focus some of their sins and their areas of weakness. Selfishness, indeed, lies at the root of much disharmony in marriage. One author of a previous generation wrote, Youth ends when egotism ends. Maturity begins when one lives for others. There's a lot of truth in this statement. Egotism, according to the Cambridge Dictionary, is thinking only about yourself and considering yourself better and more important than other people. We could substitute for egotism without changing its meaning. Youth ends when selfishness ends. Maturity begins when one lives for others. So I want to ask us a question of self-examination this morning. Are we living for ourselves? Or are we living in service to others? In this context, are we living in service to our spouse? Or said another way, how often do we prefer our spouse and his or her needs to our own? We can test ourselves by considering our patterns of behavior. Even in the little things, like pre preparing coffee in the morning, if you get up first, do you prepare a cup for your spouse? Do you make sure that the toilet seat is down or open the door? Do you consider how your activities will affect your spouse and seek to accommodate your schedule to what is best for both of you? How often do you deny yourself and your desires putting your spouse's wants ahead of your own. Paul's admonition to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 13, 4-7 applies to marriage as well. He said, Love is patient and kind. It's not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Now, sometimes we overcomplicate things. Harmony in marriage is as simple or as difficult as loving one another. Think about marriage, about a marriage where both the husband and wife are seeking to live according to this rule of love from the heart toward one another. Patient, kind, not envying, not boastful, not selfish, not irritable or resentful, mourning over wrongdoing, rejoicing in the truth, faithful, hoping, and enduring all things. This is what love is. Understanding that selfishness lies at the root of much strife, and love is what we aspire to, we can look more particularly at ways in which husbands and wives fall short. As we all know, no two people are exactly the same. There is a broad spectrum of characteristics that people have, and depending on the way that a particular person is bent, temptation and failing will come from different directions. It will be useful in this lesson to generalize two extremes as we may apply this to ourselves as it fits. Sometimes it's easier to look at the extremes and then work our way inward. On the one end of this spectrum, there is the highly motivated person 
who is goal-oriented and very competitive and very aggressive. On, this, on the other end, there is the easygoing person who doesn't need to prove anything, is very passive. I know there are other ways to organize characteristics, but this, this one can be useful for our purposes here. We all tend to fall somewhere within this spectrum where at the fringes are the over-aggressive and at the other end, the over-passive. For a man who is on the aggressive side, his sins are very visible. He can be impatient with his wife. He can be very demanding. He tends to sort out differences using intimidation, forcefulness, or even hostility. Now, all of these things are egregious transgressions against God and against his wife. The Apostle Peter teaches husbands to dwell with their wives according to knowledge, he says, giving honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers be not hindered. Now this is a paradigm-shifting verse. Wives in the pagan world were little more than slaves and instruments of gratification. But here, Peter enjoins husbands to honor their wives. We talked last time about wives reverencing their husbands. And here we have three reasons listed as to why husbands should give honor to their wives. Honor in this context is to value a precious thing, to esteem with dignity. The three reasons given to show honor to the wife are because she is the weaker vessel, two, because she is a joint heir of the grace of life, and three, so that the husband's prayers would not be hindered. Being the weaker vessel is in reference to her body and emotional constitution. She is weaker because of her particular calling in life. She is made softer than a man in her body. She is typically smaller than a man. She is by nature a nurturer. She is made weaker because her tasks do not require brute strength. She is not built for providing and protecting, but rather for giving life and establishing a home. Because of her role as a nurturer of life, her emotional frame is more sensitive and delicate than a man. Just as the heart is more delicate than the ribs that protect it, so a woman is more delicate than a man. Her weakness is given as a reason for honor, and husbands should value her kind of weakness. It is like the fact that men are weaker than gorillas. It isn't that we are less than gorillas, it is that we were made for a different purpose. A wife's weakness is to be honored because of its great value, and she is not to be mocked because she can't deadlift 500 pounds. Secondly, a Christian wife is to be honored because she is an heir together of the grace of life. Obviously, Peter is speaking about a Christian couple, and in this case, and they both are heirs of the grace of life. He is referencing the grace of salvation, and both the husband and wife are recipients of this grace. To be an heir of grace is to be loved by God, even from before the foundation of the world. 
Husbands, your wife is to be honored because she is eternally loved by God. Now, if she is loved by God, she is also to be loved and honored by you. Thirdly, your wife is to be shown honor so that your prayers will not be hindered. God is not pleased with husbands who do not show proper honor to their wives. This sounds kind of strange. Have you heard this before? Husbands honoring their wives. This is important. God is not pleased when husbands do not show proper honor to their wives. There will inevitably be strife or relational distance if the wife is not given her due honor and prayer will not thrive in this environment of family dysfunction. Prayer is to be offered up, as Scripture says, without wrath and doubting. Just as some men now are, are sinfully aggressive, there are women also who share in this characteristic. For the wife who is on the aggressive side, her sins are also very visible in that she usurps the role of her husband and is often loud and demanding. 1 Peter 3.4 speaks about how wives should adorn the hidden man of the heart. He says, But let it, that is their adornment, be the hidden man of the heart, in that which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God of great price. Contrast this with the beguiling woman in Proverbs 7 who is loud and stubborn. The spiritual adornment of the Christian wife is to be meek and quiet in spirit. The context of 1 Peter 3, 4 is concerning wives being in subjection to their husbands, and this part particularly is in reference to winning an unbelieving husband. Peter's point is that it is not the external wearing of fine clothing and jewelry that will win him, but putting on of fine apparel in the soul. This fine apparel, the inspired author says, is a meek and quiet spirit. He goes on to say, For after this manner in the old time the holy women also, who trusted in God, adorned themselves, being in subjection unto their own husbands. And what is a meek and quiet spirit? To be meek is to be mild in temper, to be humble and yielding. To be quiet is to be peaceable, not turbulent, not giving offense, not exciting controversy, disorder, or trouble. Mild, meek, contented, so defines it by Webster. So wives, if you are tempted along the lines of being aggressive, impatient, demanding, and controlling, Take to heart these rules given by the Apostle. If you begin to adorn your soul with this clothing, it will not be unnoticed. Some women try to garner attention or respect by the outward adornment of fine or ostentatious clothing. But if you want to be truly beautiful and rich, clothe the inner man with a meek and quiet spirit. <clears throat> God himself takes notice of these characteristics, and it says that it is precious in his eyes, and it has the potential to win an unbelieving husband. 
Turning our attention now to the other end of the spectrum, husbands sometimes fall short by being the nice guy. Instead of, of overbearing, harsh, impatient, he is very kind and gentle. In some ways, it's harder to detect where he falls short because he is so polite and non-offensive. His sins are sins of neglect and passivity. Remember, God made husbands the head of their wives, and this means they must lead in the relationship. We talked about this once before, but the English word husband is a wonderful word that describes the duty of a married man. The word is also used of a farmer, one who cultivates the ground. You've heard of the word husbandman. A husband manages, cultivates his family so that they will be in an environment conducive for thriving and growth. This is his job as a husband. He is responsible to take the initiative and care for the material and the spiritual well-being of his family. Obviously, kindness and gentleness are important attributes for a Christian husband. But this is different from being the nice guy. This man is content to let his wife lead while he stands around in the background being nice. He is unwilling to put on the mantle of leadership and guide his household in the ways of the Lord. His wife becomes frustrated because weeds are growing and he doesn't do anything to pull them. She feels vulnerable and unprotected and unloved. When a wife asks her nice guy husband what they should do about a particular problem, his answer is, whatever you want, honey. At some point in the past, the nice guy had made a decision, but his wife disagreed, so he gave up on leadership altogether. He was content to let her take the mantle while he focused on being non-offensive, on being nice. There are times when a godly husband must make an important decision that his wife doesn't like. It could be concerning any number of important things where they were not able to reach agreement. A good leader, after considering his wife's opinion, will make the decision that he believes is best. She may apply emotional pressure. And yet, if he truly believes it is best, he must not yield to her pressure. This is what being responsible for your, your family entails. You will give an account to God for your leadership. And if you're not willing to be the husband, the manager, the steward, then you have abdicated your right as a husband and your responsibility before God. The nice guy will never make a decision contrary to his wife. He has turned over his responsibility to her. He follows her. He neglects his duty. It may seem counterintuitive, but many wives, though they may disagree with a particular decision their husband makes, feel a sense of protection when they know that their husband is leading and that they're not the one in charge. Now, husbands, if every decision you make is contrary to your wife, there is a serious and unsustainable problem in your marriage, and you should definitely get counsel. In essence, the nice guy is not willing to do the hard work of leadership. He will let the weeds grow and wonder why his family is suffering. He fails to lead them in the word. He fails to lead them by godly counsel. 
He fails to lead them by making difficult decisions. He has deferred everything to his wife. As we have considered both ends of this spectrum of characteristics, most of us husbands fall short on both ends at times. In some areas, we exhibit impatience or forcefulness, and in others, passivity and abdication. For instance, in the area of finances, we may be very exacting of our wives to the point of excess, but completely abdicate our responsibility to be a spiritual leader. Though wives are commanded to be subject to their husbands, there is an unhealthy subjection. While Scripture says that they are to be subject in everything, this obviously excludes sin or areas where the husband has no jurisdiction. Think about it. Wives are not to be passive in their subjection, but to be thinking and acting deliberately as responding or as responsible to God for their actions. A husband has no jurisdiction over his wife's conscience. To ask a wife to go against conscience is a great evil. Every individual Christian's conscience is responsible to the word of God alone for its authority, and no man can command his wife's conscience. Now, as citizens of a nation, we must sometimes disobey authorities on matters of conscience. Where they demand something, we are not obliged by God to give. So the wife's subjection is to be deliberate and discerning. You see, passivity isn't a virtue even for a wife. She is required to think and act according to the word of God and her conscience. She too will stand before the bar of God and her submission to evil will never be approved. Her attitude is to be bent toward submission, but her mind is always to be aware of the righteousness or the unrighteousness of everything that is asked of her. And if she is required to do something contrary to God, she is right to resist or act in opposition to her husband in these cases. Abigail is a good example of this in Scripture. Her husband Nabal foolishly provoked David and his men when they asked for some food in return for the good that they had done to Nabal. Instead of giving them what was necessary, he insulted David. Now, Abigail, being a wise woman, circumvented her husband's foolishness and provided the needed provisions to David, thus saving the life of her entire family. Disobedience in the face of evil and matters of conscience or, exis or existential threats is the right thing to do. If your husband is criminally assaulting you or your children, it is absolutely the right thing to do to call the civil authorities. Passivity in this case would be a sin. But there is another way a wife may fall short on the spectrum toward passivity along different lines, and this is if she fails to give good counsel to her husband. Wise decisions aren't always easy or apparent. And the godly wife will be a valuable asset to her husband as she gives him wise counsel. This is 
an important duty of a Christian wife. Now, there are many ways besides these that we've talked about where husbands and wives fall short. We could literally go on for days talking about all the ways that we sin against each other. And even as I teach these things, I am painfully aware of areas that I fall short on both ends of this spectrum. And I know that as husbands and wives, all of us do. And it's difficult to teach on a subject that I personally have so much growing to do. But I will say that the teacher benefits probably more than those who hear the teaching. And I, I have benefited greatly from these lessons that we've been teaching on marriage. In light of that, I would like to commend unto you, especially if you're having problems in your marriage, to open up the Bible. Turn to the passages that concern marriage and dig in and start to study for yourself. What does Scripture have to say about marriage? There is great insight available to you as you consider God's words. It's easy to let the prevailing culture set the standards for husbands and wives. But only as we take heed to God can we be blessed in our marriage. Read what Scripture says to you as a husband or as a wife and let that truth wash over you. Take seriously every word that is written. That's why last time when we talked about the word reverence or calling Abraham Lord, I kind of made a remark that it seems odd in our culture to hear words like that. But those are Bible words. They mean something. And we should take care to take them seriously and to hide them into our hearts and learn from them. I think many times we just read over the words, but we fail to let them impact our thinking. And, and I'm guilty of this. As I was studying through some of these passages, and you really start to dig in and think about, what is this saying? What does it mean? It's very convicting. So if you are experiencing marital problems, if there's strife in your marriage, open up the Bible. Start to study what it says to you as a husband or to you as a wife. And obey what it says. Let's pay close attention to God's instructions. And I believe that all the marriages in our congregation will be strengthened. The next time we come together speaking on this topic, we're going to focus our attention on forgiveness in marriage. I would invite you all to that in two weeks. Let's bow for prayer. Our Father in heaven, we are definitely a sinful people, and we fall so short when it comes to our marriages and, and how we are to treat our spouse. I think of my own shortcomings, Father, and it makes me blush. I pray, Lord, that you would strengthen us, that you would forgive us and help us as we take seriously what you have to say and that every marriage that is represented in this church would be strong and the strife would cease. Lord, that you would be pleased with the marriages here. Lord, we commit this prayer time to you in Jesus' name.